everybody. We now turn our attention to God's Word. And if you were here last week, you'll know that we started a new teaching series called Come to Jesus. We're having a giant Come to Jesus moment this fall here at Community Church. We started by getting into the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at encounters where people ran up, ran into, had an encounter with Jesus. So we started by looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, a very familiar text where a, a paralyzed man is lowered from the ceiling, through the ceiling, in fact, to have an encounter with Jesus. And we, when we were looking at last week, we were saying, you know, sometimes what we think we need is not always what we need most. In fact, we get these things kind of confused a lot of the time. But when we come to Jesus, He actually helps us figure out what it is that we need most. And we saw in that text... Jesus says your life with God is of utmost importance. Remember, he began by forgiving the man's sins and then went on to heal him. It was an example of what it's like to come to Jesus. But there's so much more in this text. And we just like barely got started on it. And I find myself saying, but I'm not done with that text yet. Have you, have you ever slowed down to notice the details in life? You guys know we've got Ravenswood Park right here in Gloucester. Any Ravenswood fans who love going through Ravenswood? And okay, four of you, great. The rest of you are completely missing out. Um, I've even tried to run Ravenswood, uh, which is okay on the big road parts. Not so good on the trail parts if you like your ankles. But one of the things I discovered as I was running through Ravenswood is that I completely missed Ravenswood because I was so paranoid that I was going to break my ankles by stumbling on a rock or a root or something like this. And I missed the beauty of the park. Now, this is a perfect time of year to go to Ravenswood because the leaves are starting to turn. Autumn is here. And if you slow down in Ravenswood, you start to see things that aren't normally what you pay attention to if you're running. If you slow down, you notice the smell around you. You notice the beauty of the trail as it meanders through the woods. And you slow down even more and you look at an individual tree and you're like, actually, that's kind of spectacular. Look at the texture on the bark and the beauty of the variety. And you look at the leaves and the fractal image as it heads up into the sky. And you look even closer and you see an individual leaf and its shape being so unique and the vein patterns and the color beginning to change from green through amber into gold. Sometimes you need to slow down to appreciate the beauty that's right in front of you. And I present to you that the same is true of the Bible. That we are so driven to get into the Bible to figure out what it is we're supposed to learn from this text. Seven days later, what do we do? We flush and we hit you with another text. We've barely gotten into a text. We've barely figured out how to live into a text. We've barely figured out what it means, much less how to apply it to our lives. And then we're on to the next thing. What if? What if we slow down? What if we, instead of rushing to the next text, what if we really soak in a text? Well, that's what I'm proposing that we do, and actually you don't have any say in it. <laughs> that is what we are doing here this morning. We are going to preach the exact same text as we looked at last week. <gasps> We're even changing the logo. It's not come to Jesus anymore. It's come to Jesus again. Because 
That's what's happening. We come to Jesus. What, you think that's a one-time thing? No, it's a lifestyle of coming to Jesus again. And this fall, we want to slow down and take a second look at every text that we study. And as we do so, we want to change sort of the, the points of view that we're looking at. Right, so last week, we even looked at this text from the perspective of the crowd, right? Everyone, the onlookers, even the scribes that were there, and they were so hot and bothered because there Jesus is claiming to forgive sins, claiming to be God, and yet clearly demonstrating His priority that before we even get around to healing the body, the most important thing is to reconcile that man's relationship with God. Son, your sins are forgiven. And so the whole crowd was looking on, seeing who Jesus was and seeing what Jesus' priority is. But you know there are other characters in the story, right? Last week we looked at the text from the perspective of the crowd. What if this week we look at it from the perspective of the paralyzed man? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 2. Apparently we have to see that animation again. There it is, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you've got a Black Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 813. And I invite you to listen again as we read the text. Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1, we find these words. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that He'd come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And He preached the Word to them. Now some men came, bringing to Him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. So Father, as we approach your word, once again we humble ourselves before whatever you have for us to receive from your word this morning. We choose to adopt a posture where the Scriptures hold authority over our lives. You know how we are wired to live. You know how we should live in a way that brings glory to Your name. So as we meet with You in the pages of Your Word, illuminate our hearts that we might capture some of what You have to say for us this morning. We delight that You are present here. And we worship You in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning I would like to invite you on a journey to an idea. To approach this text from the perspective of the paralyzed man, 
there is a conclusion we will get to, but we've got to kind of build our way there with a couple of assertions. What I mean by that, when we start looking at a text like this, there is a clear starting place that I would like to present to you. Right? The text starts a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum. The people heard He'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers. There was no room left. We saw all this last week. This is old news. Not even outside the door was there any room, and He preached the Word to them. And then some men came, bringing to Him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. So this week, we're going beyond the crowds that showed up, and now we're looking, focusing in on verse 3. Some men came. And actually, if you want to be super focused, we're just focusing on this part, bringing to Him a paralyzed man. The starting point for understanding our text this week is to acknowledge it starts with a man who's paralyzed. The fact that the man exists in this state of paralysis leads us to this foundational understanding that we are a broken people living in a broken world. Now let that sink in a little bit. We are a broken people living in a broken world. This is where the story starts. There's a man who's paralyzed. There is clear evidence of brokenness here. And yet, we fall into this sort of theological error that we think, even in our day, we think that life should be filled with health and wealth and comfort. And anything that interferes with those things, well, that's a violation of my personal rights. You, you see it, 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 it's all over the place. It, it, it's even in the church. You ask someone how their week was, and they're like, you would not believe what happened to me. And people will list off all of the things that have infringed upon their health or their wealth or their personal comfort. As though hardship is some intrusion into their otherwise perfectly scripted lives. You know the Bible teaches otherwise, right? The Bible does not teach that your life should be easy or smooth sailing or that it will be free from pain or hardship or sorrow or death. That time is coming, the Bible teaches. There will be a day when there will be no more tears or sorrow or crying or pain because the old order of things will pass away, but that time is not yet. So right now, life is hard. That's kind of a theological framework for all of life. We were created to live in harmony with the earth and with one another, but sin kind of blew that to heck. And we see, I mean, this is how it's taught from the very beginning, right? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. They say, we're doing our own thing here, Lord. We know better than you. That fruit looks tasty. Sin enters the world. And what are the consequences of that sin? Well, there's four things that break. The relationship with God breaks. They hide from Him. The relationship with each other breaks, right? Remember in the curse that God pronounces over them that there'll be a discord between them. Their physical bodies break. The introduction of pain and the physical world breaks, the introduction of thorns. These are representative categories that show that relationships are broken as a result of sin between God and one another and the physical world, our bodies, and this planet that God has placed us on. These things are broken. The lives we have are broken. This is actually why we need saving. What's weird is that here in this country, we've been able to beat back the brokenness by sheer force of will and technology. Some of us are able to forget the truth that we're a broken people living in a broken world. Right? We have enough money to buy the comfort we want. Or there's enough distraction to keep us from thinking too deeply 
But eventually the time comes when a devastating illness will strike. Or when death steals someone we love. Or when a relationship crashes and burns and we think, what? where did this come from? What did I deserve? What did I do to deserve being singled out for such misery? And the answer is nothing. This is the natural state of the world now since sin came along. This is the natural state of humanity. We are a broken people living in a broken world because of sin and separation from God. It's how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. He writes, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of of our bodies. Do you hear both aspects here? Here we have Paul writing about the created world that is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. The effects of sin were to corrupt the physical world. That, that, it makes sense. This is, there are hurricanes, there are natural disasters, there are floods, there are droughts, there is sickness, there is disease, there is plague, there is epidemic. This is, this is, the, nat- this is the natural. State The broken natural state is the result of sin. And then he goes on to talk about our own lives and even our bodies that are broken. And we groan inwardly waiting for the redemption of our bodies saying, Lord Jesus, illness is a violation. Death is a violation. Chronic sickness, disease, these things are not the way things were always meant to be. And we understand, Jesus, you're coming back and we hope and long for that day when you will make all things new. But until that day... This is the world we live in. We are a broken people living in a broken world. And we see that before we even get going into this text. We see it because it is a paralyzed man who is brought to Jesus. It is evidence of a broken people living in a broken world. And the question is, when you finally run up unavoidably against the brokenness, will you be ready for it? When we are separated from God, when, when sin enters reality, everything eventually breaks. This planet, our relationships, the paralytic's legs, and our hearts. Apart from the saving grace of Jesus, everything and everyone is broken. Now, that's just the starting point. Isn't that cheery? I apologize for being kind of morbid. But the biblical worldview, you can't understand how beautiful salvation is if you don't think you're being saved from anything terrible. So we know, even from last week, that the solution to the brokenness is Jesus. A reconciled relationship with God that happens because Jesus forgives sins. We get that. Jesus is near. He brings healing to wholeness. But there are times... There are times where we just can't seem to get to Jesus from where we are. I mean, we see that in the text, right? Going back to Mark chapter 2. It talks about the people, the city, the town, gathered in such large numbers. There was no room left, not even outside the door, as Jesus was preaching. And then some men come, and they bring a paralyzed man carried by four of them, but they couldn't even get to Jesus because of the crowd. Right? The text highlights that the crowds were the reason they couldn't get to Jesus. But there's, there's also another more obvious reason. The man's legs didn't work. So he couldn't walk. He couldn't get himself to Jesus. 
And the text is clear that it was the man's friends who carried him to Jesus. That's what I mean. We just can't get there from here. There are times in our lives where we feel like we just can't get to Jesus from where we are. And then there's this great line. Verse 5 in the text. So they make an opening in the roof. They drop the man down. And verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith. Now I like this because I, what I see first here is I see ambiguity. Their faith. Whose faith are we talking about here, Jesus? Whose faith are we talking about? Is this the faith of five men? There's a paralytic and four friends. Or is this the faith of just four friends? And a paralytic who's having a really hard day. Let me explain the options here. Option one is that the paralyzed man was a man full of hope. This is the five-person option. That Jesus saw all of their faith. The faith of these five as they came to Him. This is how I picture the conversation going as they're trying to figure out how to get to Jesus. The paralyzed man says, guys, guys, did you hear? Jesus is in town. Man, you have got to get me to Jesus. Haven't you heard about everything He's been doing? He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. He healed Simon's mom. He'll be able to fix my legs. Guys, you've got to get me to Him. Seriously, get me there. Get get the mat. I'm on the mat. Hurry up, pick up the mat. All four of you, let's go. Get me to Jesus. That's a man full of hope. It makes good sense of the verse. When Jesus saw their faith, the man, the paralyzed man, is part of that group whose faith is commended in the text. And that's really nice. And that's a sparkly way of looking at life. And I like sparkly. It's just not my experience. There is a second option. And that's, instead of seeing the paralyzed man as being a man full of hope, we see the paralyzed man as a man who's lost all hope. And what if he was just done? What if he was just overwhelmed by life? We don't know if he was born paralyzed. We don't know if it was an accident that took the the mobility from him. But what if he wasn't the driving force behind getting to Jesus? What if he was just angry and bitter? What if he was just so hurting and hopeless that he'd just given up? What if he'd stopped caring altogether? What if the conversation was more like this? Hey, we're taking you to Jesus. Over my dead, crippled body, you're taking me to Jesus. What do you think he's going to do for me? No, we're taking you to Jesus. Hey, get the mat. We're taking him to Jesus. I'm not getting on that mat. Grab his arms. I'll grab his legs. Don't you touch me. Don't you touch me. Don't you put me on that mat. Can you imagine the guy being brought to Jesus? Maybe even kicking and screaming if his legs had worked? Or even worse, calm because he's hopeless. With a heart, just screw it. Do whatever you want. I don't care. I wonder if when Jesus was talking about when he saw their faith, if he was also talking about the faithfulness of these friends who brought their friend to the only one who can save. Okay, honesty moment. When brokenness hits, I'm usually the second option. How about you? When brokenness threatens to win in my life, I get angry or I get afraid or I withdraw and I give up. It doesn't take a crowd to keep me from Jesus because I'm not even trying to get back to Jesus. I am the one who is so quick to say, screw it, it's easier just to give up and to pretend like nothing matters. Yet I wonder if these friends manhandled the guy to get him to Jesus. 
Which makes me wonder what that interaction with Jesus would have been like if, if option two is really what's happening in the text. We're very short on details, right? What was spoken between the man and Jesus? But it makes me wonder, you know, it says Jesus knows in his spirit what people are thinking. It makes me wonder, was there like a whole unspoken conversation going on just through like eye contact between the man and Jesus? And if you would choose to see it through the lens perhaps of your imagination, I wonder if the unspoken conversation went something like this. So the man is being lowered through the roof, helpless to do anything about it. And he's thinking, I'm going to kill them? This is so embarrassing in front of the whole town as if Jesus would ever heal me. I'm going to kill them? At least those were his thoughts until his mat finally lowered to the point where it stopped in front of Jesus. And when their eyes met, everything began to happen at once because Jesus' eyes were sparkling, like with merriment. You could tell he was loving everything that was unfolding in the room. He loved the dust and the mud and the sticks that had been raining down on the crowd. And he loved the friends who were lowering this man before him. And he loved the man with paralyzed legs and a paralyzed heart. And he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the man glared back at Jesus almost defiantly. My sins, he's thinking. Anger flashes in his eyes. My sins. I don't care about my sins. Look at my legs, Jesus. Look at my legs. I don't want your forgiveness. I want you to heal my legs. See, I knew it. I knew you wouldn't heal me. I told them. I told them this was pointless. Your sins are forgiven. The man's heart keeps roiling under Jesus' stare. You don't get it, do you? I'm useless like this. I can't walk. I can't work. I'm a burden on my family. I'm a burden on my community. I'm not even allowed in the temple to worship my God. If He even sees me down here all broken and paralyzed, you think my big pressing need is forgiveness? I need my legs to work. How dare you forgive my sins? And Jesus just absorbs the man's accusations, absorbing his resentment and rage. Your sins are forgiven. And the man's heart cries out to Jesus, wait, you're supposed to be this great healer, so heal me then. Look, Don't you get it? One day I want to wrestle with my infant son out in the garden. One day I want to dance with my daughter at her wedding. I want to go for a walk with my wife in the cool of the evening. Is it too much to ask just to want to be whole? How dare you forgive my sins? Your sins are forgiven. And the man's heart lashes out. Who do you think you are? You'll, you'll never know what it's like to be wounded, will you? You'll never know what it's like to experience pain. You'll never know what it's like to feel abandoned by God and by everyone who supposedly loves you. How dare you speak into my life? And Jesus just holds the man's eyes, absorbing the hurt, the sense of loss, the feelings of betrayal and abandonment, allowing his own words to echo again in the man's heart. Your sins are forgiven. The man was spent. He was so tired. Tired of being broken. Tired of being angry. Tired of yelling at Jesus in his heart. Tired of raging against God in his heart. And then, something happened. It's like someone lit a lamp in the darkness as though Jesus was speaking to him in the deepest place of his heart. No one else could even hear it. And it was a message just for him. It's as if Jesus was saying, my son, your legs are not the problem here. 
It's your heart. You are not worthless. You are precious to God. You are not lost. You have been found by God. You are not a burden. I'm here to take your burden upon myself. You are seen by God and you are loved. And all the sin that's corrupted your life, the anger and resentment that has consumed you, the blame and the wounds that you visit down upon others, your insolence and your contempt for God, and the way this corruption is spread through your whole life, it's time for that to go. I could heal your legs, but that wouldn't fix the problem. I need to heal your heart. And there's only one way to do that, and that is to forgive your sins and reconcile you to God. It's to fix your relationship with the God who made you and loves you, no matter how broken your body, no matter how broken the world. God wants you to know Him. And there's only one way back to life with God, and I'm giving it to you right now. Son, your sins are forgiven. man would have been speechless and humbled and maybe miraculously whole. So it's not about my legs then. No, it's not about your legs. You know, sometimes I wonder if we aren't the biggest obstacle we come up against in trying to get back to Jesus. Sometimes I wonder if that's what's going on in this text. Right? Healing, wholeness, forgiveness, life with God. These are things only Jesus can give us. Sometimes it's our hearts that are in the way. Our stubbornness, our pride, our anger, our resentment, our woundedness, our hurt. It begins with an acknowledgement that we are a broken people living in a broken world. If we think otherwise, we're deceiving ourselves. We can get by for a time, but eventually brokenness comes. When it does, will you be ready for it? Well, we know we need to get back to Jesus, but for whatever reason, there are times we just can't seem to get there from here. Our hearts are angry and hurting. Our souls feel betrayed or abandoned. Our bodies fail us. Our relationships crumble. And the idea of coming to Jesus seems impossible. Not unlike asking a paralyzed man to get up and go see Jesus for himself. And sometimes we don't even want to come to Jesus. Because he'll take away our anger and pain. And actually, we've grown quite used to it. Kind of like the way it tastes in our mouth. It's our armor Our anger and our resentment protects us from what's worse, which is feeling powerless and vulnerable and hurt. And so we refuse to come to Jesus because heaven forbid, what if He did heal us? Which leads us to what I would argue is the landing place for our text this morning. When brokenness threatens to win, we need people who will bring us to Jesus. When brokenness threatens to win, we need people who will bring us to Jesus. And that's exactly what happens in this text. Some men came, bringing to Him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. This man both needed Jesus and needed help to get there. And he couldn't have made it back to the Savior without his friends. 
Now, to be clear, this is not a direct parallel, right? Jesus is here. He is right here among us. No crowd can ever prevent access again. No infirmity can keep us from His presence ever again. The limiting factor now is not crowds or infirmity. The limiting factor is our hearts. Our resentment, our anger, our self-protection, our sin. These are the things that keep us from Jesus. And that's when being among God's people matters. Who do you have in your life who knows you better than an occasional high on a Sunday morning? Who do you have in your life that might dare to bring you to Jesus? That can actually be a painful question. That can be something your heart has been longing for for years. And it could also be something your heart has been avoiding for years. Why do you think we keep inviting you to make Sunday morning at church a really significant part of your life? Because we want you in relationships, growing with one another. Why do you think we're offering Sunday morning seminars downstairs at 9 o'clock? It's not too late to join. It's not because we think Sunday morning seminars are awesome. We want you to have a, a context in which you can grow in relationships with one another. Why do you think we take our ministry teams and say, join a ministry team, serve in the nursery, join the worship team, help with the open door. Those are all good things, but we want you in relationships so that when the time comes and when brokenness threatens to win, you've got a people. Why do you think we have all our small group leaders standing at the front? Is it because we're so enamored with our small group program? No, it's because you need people. And if that doesn't work for you because you're third shift, well then grab a couple of people and meet on Thursday mornings before work to share together and pray or maybe even go one-on-one with someone who's a little further along in the journey of faith than you and get involved in some sort of mentoring discipleship relationship. Why do you think we emphasize all these things? Do you think we care at all about our programs? We care about you. And when it hits the fan, we want you to be in community. So that when you need it, you've got people around you who will bring you to Jesus. We believe this is the best path for growing as followers of Jesus in the good times. Absolutely. But when brokenness shows up and when it threatens to win, if you don't have people around you, you're lost. When brokenness threatens to overwhelm you, if you don't have others who love Jesus around you, you're done for. And when brokenness tears your life apart and leaves you undone, you need people around you who will bring you to Jesus. (laughs) It's fun. Jake and I were doing some math this week. We often do math just for fun. We've got about 300 people who call Community Church home. So I asked Jake, hey Jake, how many of us are involved in a small group? About 45 minutes later, Jake was finished the math. (laughs) What's great is that I was texting him this because I assumed he was home and he was texting me back because he assumed I was home and we were actually 40 feet apart in respective offices. And he told me, Tim, we've got about 60 people here that are involved in a small group. So that roughly translates to one in five, which means four out of five of us are not part of a small group. 
Now, there are other places to find your people, but that number scares me. Does that mean four out of five of us do not have our people? Why not? Oh, here are the reasons. Because we're too busy. Life is full, and there's the idea of joining a small group on a weeknight. My kids have soccer, or I'm taking a night class, or I only go into work at 11 anyway, so I, I can't do it. It's too hard. You know, it was easy to make relationships when I was in college because I was in a dorm and we all kind of got thrown in together and we had to share this experience and live together, but now we're out in like pretending to be grown-ups and and we're not all in a dorm together and our lives don't naturally overlap and and building relationships takes all this effort and investment and garbage like that. Or it's too risky. Wait, you're saying I should like take off my masks and let people see who I actually am? To see the real me and not just the me that I present in public? That's terrifying. Or maybe it's too costly because if, if I let people go, get to know me, then I'm going to have to know them. And then if they have needs, I'll be on the hook for helping them with their needs. Forget that. Or maybe it's even too painful. Yeah, I tried that community thing and it didn't work and I was hurt. Or maybe if you just summarize it all up, it's just too real. And by that I mean you can't just skate through life at the surface level watching more Netflix and endless swiping through Facebook. If you're in a community of people who are going to know you and love you and take a bullet for you. And who might even, when the brokenness comes, pick you up and carry you to Jesus. Those are all very real objections. Do it anyways. Join a small group. Get into a mentoring relationship. Be part of a triad. Join a ministry team. Invite people over for lunch after church. Not today. There's a newcomer's lunch. Come downstairs and join us for a newcomer's lunch today after work. Let yourself be known. Take off your masks. Risk letting people get to see the real you. Put up with the awkwardness. Know that you will get hurt along the way. Church is filled with broken people. We say stupid things. Chief sinner among the group. This is just part of life and relationships. Cut each other slack. Extend grace. But do you see how it all fits together and how it emerged? Now, I am not saying this is the main point of the text we're looking at this morning. I think last week we talked about the main idea of the text. But this week's text, this is a really important point. And it begins by saying we are a broken people living in a broken world. The man's paralyzed. If that isn't evidence of this truth, I don't know what is. We are paralyzed. And there are times when the brokenness surfaces that we just can't seem to get to Jesus from where we're at. And it's not because of the crowds. And it's not because our legs don't work. It's because our hearts don't work. And in those times when brokenness threatens to win, we need people who will bring us to Jesus. And this is what it means for the picture that's all blurry to start coming into focus and say, come to Jesus. And you say, I, I, I don't know how. I can't. I've forgotten how. I'm afraid to. I'm clinging to my anger. I'm clinging to my loss of hope. I'm, I'm protecting myself. Whatever it is, just don't make me look at Jesus in His eyes. But the invitation is 
to come to Jesus. Again, you are the man. And when brokenness threatens to win, who do you have in your life that will bring you to Jesus? And what are you going to do about that? Will you pray with me? Jesus, even in this room, you know there are people with all their defenses up, clinging to their anger or their resentment. Maybe even clinging to their anger so they don't have to feel the wounds. And the last thing they want to do is to come face to face with a God who will strip all of that away and set them free from it. We are all broken. And we need You, Lord Jesus. And that's not a one-time fix. That's not a, hey, I prayed the sinner's prayer and now I'm set for life. This is coming to You, Jesus, again and again and again. Father, I thank You for a church that does love one another. Help us grow in that love. Help us to be a safe place for people to take the risk of letting people get to know us. God, allow this community to be a safe place for people to be honest and real and vulnerable. A willingness to share life. And not just the shiny, pretty parts of life, but the hard parts of life, the painful parts of life, the parts of life that overwhelm and threaten to leave us undone. Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name that You would infuse this community with Your grace. That You would empower the courage to let other people see us. To let other people know us. To take the risk of being vulnerable in relationships again. Knowing we might get hurt again. And yet, we ask for Your protection over this community as well. Guard the tender hearts. Bind up the brokenhearted. Meet those with deep wounds in the deepest places. And give us hope. We proclaim that the only solution to the brokenness is life with You. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for redeeming us. Thank You not just for saving us from our sin, but saving us for life with You. We need it. We need you. And we need you together. In your name we pray. Amen.